This is Medieval Death Trip for Sunday, March 26, 2017, episode 37, concerning a prank, a king's death, manslaughter, and a false pregnancy. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Uh, and I'm sorry that it took a little while to get this second episode of the year finished and out, uh, but I'm hoping we'll have smoother sailing going forward. Casting our memories way back to last episode, uh, back in mid-February, we saw King Alexander II of Scotland wading into the First Barons' War on the Barons' side against King John. About 30 years after this, Alexander began a project of reclaiming for Scotland the Western Isles, a.k.a. the Outer Hebrides, which had been under Norse control since the 8th century. While on an expedition to the Isles in 1249, the king caught a fever and died at the age of 50, leaving his seven-year-old son to become King Alexander III. The young Alexander's early reign was marked by factional conflict, um, a common feature when you have a child monarch and a kingdom run by a ruling council. He was married to Margaret, the daughter of King Henry III, King John's son. Um, She was 11 years old, and he was 10. Neither this nominal marriage nor the kingdom were in particularly good shape, uh, until Alexander finally reached his age of majority, uh, 21 years old, and took on full royal authority. And then things started to turn around for him. Uh, One of his first acts was to resume his father's final campaign, Uh, And he did manage to win the Isle of Man and the Western Isles from the King of Norway through the Treaty of Perth in 1266, a pretty nice feather in his cap. In roughly that same decade, he had three children with Margaret, a daughter and two sons, and things were looking pretty good for the king. But then Margaret fell ill and died in 1275. There were rumors of poisoning. In 1281, Alexander's youngest son died, And then two years after that, his daughter died, uh, apparently from complications following childbirth. And less than a year after that, his last remaining son died. So that in 1284, Alexander is 42 years old and without a direct heir to his throne. All he has is an infant granddaughter, now motherless, living off in Norway with her 15-year-old father, Eric Magnusson, the Norwegian king. So now the clouds are starting to roll in over Scotland. But 42 is still relatively young and vigorous for a medieval nobleman, so Alexander married a daughter of French nobility, the 22-year-old Yolanda of Drew. Once again, things are looking up for the king, until a year later, a final tragedy strikes. And that tale is what we're going to hear today, as described by the Lanarkost Chronicle. We've usually gone to the Lanarkost Chronicle for real grab-bag episodes, uh, since that's something the Chronicle really trades in. Annual catalogs of marvels and strange occurrences. Uh, But this time, we get to see the more traditionally historical side of the Lanarkost Chronicle, though it still takes its time to luxuriate in the odd moment and gruesome detail. In order to flesh out today's story, I'm going to impose a little bit of grab-bagginess on the text uh, by attaching up front a separate little narrative from uh, a bit earlier in the Chronicle about a prank gone wrong involving Alexander's first wife, Queen Margaret. Then we'll skip ahead a little bit in the Chronicle to hear the relatively brief notice of the Queen's death, 
and then we'll start in with the longer story of what befell Alexander himself. And let's get to it. I'll be reading from the translation of the latter part of the Lanarkost Chronicle by Sir Herbert Maxwell, with here and there a few adjustments of phrasing or word choice. In truth, whereas diligence in evil seldom has a good issue, it pleases one to relate an instance rather for the sake of justice than from ill will to an individual. Queen Margaret of Scotland, deeply distressed by her various trials, chiefly by the death of her father, Henry III, and by anxiety about the return of her brother from the crusade, went forth one beautiful evening after supper from Kinclaven to take the air on the banks of the Tay, accompanied by esquires and maidens, but in particular by her confessor, who related to me what took place. There was present, among others, a certain pompous esquire with his page, who had been recommended to him by his brother in the presence of his superiors. And as they were sitting under the brow of the bank, he, the esquire, went down to wash his hands, which he had soiled with clay in playing. As he thus stood bending over, one of the maids, prompted by the queen, went up secretly and pushed him into the riverbed. What care I, cried he, enjoying the joke and taking it kindly. Even were I further in, I know how to swim. Wading about thus in the channel, while the others applauded, he felt his body unexpectedly sucked into an eddy, and though he shouted for help, there was none who would go to him except his little page boy, who was playing near at hand, and hearing the clamor of the bystanders, rushed into the deep, and both were swallowed up in a moment before the eyes of all. Thus did the enemy of Simon and satellite of Satan, who declared that he had been the cause of that gallant knight's destruction, perish in sight of all, and the matron, spoiled by the undue affection of her parents, received rebuke for her selfish love, and showed herself before all men wounded to the heart by overpowering anguish. In this year, 1275, Margaret, Queen of Scotland and sister of the King of England, died on the 4th of the Calends of March. She was a woman of great beauty, chastity, and humility, three qualities seldom united in one individual. When her strength was failing, many abbots as well as bishops collected to visit her, to all of whom she refused entrance to her chamber. Nor from the time that she had received all the sacraments from her confessor, a Minorite friar, until her soul passed away, did she admit any other to discourse, unless perhaps her husband happened to be present. She left behind her three children, Alexander and David and a daughter Margaret, all of whom followed their mother in a short time, owing, it is believed, to the sin of their father. Richard of Inverkeething, Bishop of Dunkeld, departed from the world treacherously poisoned, as is affirmed, and it is believed by many that the aforesaid queen perished in the same manner, for, after the death of the aforesaid man, a certain fellow, author of this plot, drawing near to death, declared that he had sold poison in this place and that, and that a full bottle thereof still remained in Scotland. And seeing that the movables of bishops dying in that kingdom devolve upon the king, 
He, Richard, only, and one other named Robert de la Provender, Bishop of Dublin, whom we remember above all others, so made a virtue of necessity at the point of death by distributing their goods that they left scarcely anything to satisfy the cupidity of royal personages. In the course of this year, 1286, King Alexander III of Scotland was removed by sudden death from the world, after he had reigned 36 years and 9 months. He departed from the world on the 14th of the Calends of April, late on Monday night, being the vigil of St. Cuthbert, bishop and confessor, the liberties and bounds of whose bishopric Alexander had violated for three years past. And whereas it was held by the superior clergy that the Lord would remove from the world both his children and his wife during his own lifetime for his chastisement, and whereas that did not cause him to reform, anyone may perceive how there was fulfilled in him holy Job's prophecy, which saith, God will visit upon his children the sorrow of the Father, and when he has accomplished this, he shall know it. Of a truth, it was foretold to him by just men that the Lord had shaken his sword against him, that he had bent and made ready his bow against him, and had prepared many arrows against him, etc. Besides all this, there was repeated in the province throughout the whole of that year a fatal saying by the Scots, that at that time should come the judgment day, at which many trembled and a few scoffed. In December preceding, next before these events, under the sign of Capricorn, many terrible thunderings were heard and lightning was seen, which, in the opinion of wise men, presaged the overthrow of princes, who were thus warned to take heed to themselves. But whereas all these and other warnings were of no avail to enlighten Alexander's mind, God punished him by the means he appointed. For Alexander used never to forbear, on account of season or storm, nor for perils of flood or rocky cliffs, but would visit, not too creditably, both matrons and nuns, virgins and widows, by day or by night as the fancy seized him, sometimes in disguise, often accompanied by a single follower. On that very day, then, when judgment was imminent, though he suspected it not, there arose such a mighty tempest that, to me and most men, it seemed disagreeable to expose one's face to the north wind, rain, and snow. On which day Alexander was holding a council in the lofty Castrum Puellarum, with a great assembly of the nobles of the land, for the purpose of replying to the emissaries of the King of England, who were due at Norham on the third day after, with the bodily presence of Thomas of Galloway, whose release from prison was besought at that time by Sir John de Balliol, the son of the older Balliol. When they had sat down to dinner, Alexander sent a present of fresh lampreys to a certain baron, bidding him by an esquire to make the party merry, for he should know that this was the judgment day. The baron, after returning thanks, facetiously replied to his lord, If this be the judgment day, we shall soon rise with full bellies. The protracted feast having come to an end, Alexander would neither be deterred by stress of weather, nor yield to the persuasion of his nobles, but straightway hurried along the road to Queen's Ferry, in order to visit his bride, that is to say, Yoletta, daughter of the Comte de Drew, whom shortly before he had brought from over the sea, to his own sorrow and the perpetual injury of the whole province. For she was then staying at Kinghorn. 
many people declare that before her engagement beyond the sea, she had taken the habit in a convent of nuns, but that she had changed her mind with the levity of a woman's heart and through ambition for a kingdom. When Alexander arrived at the village near the crossing, the ferry master warned him of the danger and advised him to go back. But when the king asked him in return whether he was afraid to die with him, by no means, quoth he, it would be a great honor to share the fate of your father's son. Thus he arrived at the burg of Inverkeething, in profound darkness, accompanied only by three esquires. The manager of his salt pans, a married man of that town, recognizing him by his voice, called out, My lord, what are you doing here in such a storm and such darkness? Often I have tried to persuade you that your nocturnal rambles will bring you no good. Stay with us, and we will provide you with decent fare and all that you want till morning light. No need for that, said the other with a laugh, but provide me with a couple of bondmen to go afoot as guides to the way. And it came to pass that when they had proceeded two miles, one and all lost all knowledge of the way, owing to the darkness. Only the horses, by natural instinct, picked out the hard road. While they were thus separated from each other, the esquires took the right road, but Alexander at length, that I may make a long story short, fell from his horse, and bade farewell to his kingdom in the sleep of Sisera. To him Solomon's proverb applies, Woe unto him who, when he falls, has no man to raise him up. He lies at Dumfriland, alone in the South Isle, buried near the presbytery. Whence comes it that, while we may see the populace bewailing his sudden death as deeply as the desolation of the realm, those only who adhered to him most closely in life for his friendship and favors wet not their cheeks with tears? But whereas a chronicle which strews its course with extinguished cinders will be deemed too dry, I shall here relate, to the praise of the incorrupt virgin, what befell on the Annunciation immediately after this event. In that kingdom there is a village called Stainhouse on this side of the Burg of Stirling, wherein a farmer, not sufficiently respecting the feast of the conception of the Son of God, went to the plough, yoked his team, and having set his own son to drive the animals, began to plough the turf. But as the oxen did not go fast enough, and by avoiding the yoke drew a crooked furrow, the obstinate fellow cried to his son to goad them, and shouted curses on the beasts. At length, wrought into a fury, he seized a plough staff, and, meaning to deal a heavy blow on the restive one of the oxen, he aimed a miss, and struck the head of his own son, who fell dead. Thus he became the murderer of his own offspring, an outlaw from his own people, obnoxious to the author of salvation and the betrayer of his own cause. After so evil a fate as the death of their king, the magnates of the realm of Scotland, adopting sound counsel for themselves, elected from the prelates as well as the nobles guardians of the peace for the community until such time as it should be made clear by deliberation what person should be accepted for such rule. They governed the country for six years, transacting the affairs of the people and, before all, of the Lady Queen, widow of Alexander, assigning a portion as her terse. But she, resorting to feminine craft, was pretending to be pregnant, 
in order to cause patriots to postpone their decision, and that she might more readily attract popularity to herself. But just as a woman's cunning always turns out wretchedly in the end, so she disquieted the land with her pretenses from the day of the king's death till the feast of the purification. Nor would she admit respectable matrons to examine her condition, and in order that she might return ignominy upon those from whom she had received reverence and honor, she determined to deceive the nation forever by foisting on herself the child of another. She caused a new font to be made of white marble, and she contrived to have the son of a play actor to be brought up to her so that it might pass for hers. And when as many as collected to dance in honor of so important an accouchement had come to Stirling, the place where the aforesaid lady was staying, at the time for her to be brought to bed, which she herself had arranged beforehand, her fraud was detected and revealed by the sagacity of William of Buchan, to the confusion of all present, and to all those willing to trust her who heard of it afterwards. Thus did she, who was first attracted from over the sea only by the prospect of wealth and was united to the king in marriage, depart from the country with shame. That I have said so much about the fidelity of women previously is my reason for adding here another instance in a different vein. So there we have the death of Alexander III and its aftermath from the Lanarkost Chronicle. With no other heir, Alexander's granddaughter, Margaret, maid of Norway, became Queen of Scots. Given that she was a baby, this was a purely nominal role, uh, and at the age of seven, while on the boat taking her from Norway to Scotland to receive her kingdom, she too died from an illness, leaving Scotland to be plunged into a succession crisis that became the 14th century wars of Scottish independence. Things might have turned out quite differently if Alexander had managed to produce an heir with his new queen, Yolanda of Drew. Our chronicler gives pretty much the least charitable version of events in asserting that Yolanda attempted to fake a pregnancy in order to secure the line, and of course to maintain her own status as a dowager queen. He paints her as a schemer, a deceiver, uh, even as a kind of inadvertent femme fatale since it is the lustful desire to visit her that drives the king out into the storm on his fatal journey. This is classic clerical misogyny, uh, which the chronicler even kind of acknowledges and justifies there in the last sentence from today's excerpt, that I have said so much about the fidelity of women previously is my reason for adding here another instance in a different vein. Or in other words, I've previously given you examples of good and faithful women, and unless you get the wrong idea, here's another to show you how bad they can be. Other sources and most modern historians conclude that Yolanda really was pregnant, um, but that she either had a miscarriage or the child was stillborn. Politically, the end result is the same. Yolanda was able to remain in Scotland for a few years, but eventually she returned to France, where she married the Duke of Brittany, went on to have a number of children, and died in 1322 at the age of 59. So that's the end of the story. Uh, let's zip back up to the beginning of the tale of Alexander's death. There's an interesting structure here in that the very first thing it does is tell us how it ends. In the course of this year, 1286, King Alexander III of Scotland was removed by sudden death from the world after he had reigned 36 years and nine months. There's a lot we could say about the idea of suspense in pre-modern storytelling, namely that it doesn't seem to have been a top narrative priority. 
I've always assumed this comes from the oral tradition, which is still strongly informing narrative structure in the medieval period. In a full-fledged oral culture, you tend to hear the same stories told and retold. They have to be repeatedly retold, or they cease to exist in an oral tradition. So being surprised by what happens in a story uh, is just not something you experience all that often. The capacity for surprise and delight in such a culture is more in an individual storyteller or poet's style, or choice of imagery, or use of references and allusions to other stories that you also already know like the back of your hand. It's aesthetic surprise. Uh, It's not about not knowing what's about to happen to the characters. So in that sense, a medieval audience would have little conception of a spoiler alert, and would have found the structure of this bit of historiographic narration perfectly natural. It starts by announcing the main event, the king's death, and then backtracks to narrate the events leading up to it, which is what an oral storyteller might do. Do you recall the story of when the king died? Well, it happened on a dark and stormy night. Uh, That's my first theory, at any rate. Um, A second explanation takes almost the opposite premise, uh, where maybe we could take this structure as a reflection of a fundamentally literate culture of manuscript production. Maybe announcing the main event of the story is a technique that serves to provide uh, the equivalent of chapter headings or a rubric, uh, or even to facilitate them being added to later copies. Or perhaps it simply demonstrates the chronicler's elaboration on the basic structure of the annal, which in its simplest form just lists years and their key events, especially deaths of public figures. So the announcement of the king's death is the bare annal entry, And the narrative that follows is the chronicler's choice to elaborate on that fundamental historical unit of which the whole chronicle is comprised. As for the content of this death narrative, uh, two moments stand out for me. The first is the ferryman's response to the king's question of whether he would be willing to risk death in taking the king across the river in the storm. By no means, quoth he, it would be a great honor to share the fate of your father's son. This is a very odd expression. The ferryman is basically showing his reverence for Alexander's father instead of Alexander himself. He doesn't say, it would be an honor to die alongside you, my lord. He says, it would be an honor to die alongside the former king's son. The chronicler doesn't show Alexander reacting in any way to it, which suggests that it is uh, just a stock phrase. And it is perfectly typical to honor a king by honoring their illustrious ancestors. Uh, There's almost this notion of praise of the parent inherently extending to and including the fruit of that parent's loins. Nonetheless, in the context of the Chronicle, where our author is presenting Alexander in a fairly critical light, I rather wonder if we aren't meant to see this remark as the ferryman rather subtly throwing shade on Alexander. After all, even the ferryman enters the scene questioning the king's judgment in trying to make the crossing. We also have this rather odd insertion of the story of the sacrilegious plowman who accidentally kills his own son while trying to work on a holy day. Uh, I'll confess I'm pretty stumped about this whole digression. Um, First, I don't really know what the chronicler means when he says, but whereas a chronicle which strews its course with extinguished cinders will be deemed too dry, I shall here relate to the praise of the incorrupt virgin what befell in the Annunciation. I don't know what makes the story of Alexander's death an extinguished cinder, and I don't know if that's a biblical reference. I couldn't find anything that matched that term. 
Um, and I'm not sure how the story of the plowman's son's death is somehow categorically different from the narrative of Alexander's death. In fact, if anything, I want to try to make this little tale serve as a parable commenting on Alexander, but I don't really even see how those parallels match up. You have two characters who are both involved in different kinds of dishonoring the church, what with Alexander chasing nuns and cavalierly disregarding clerical prophecies and warnings, but in the one, the perpetrator dies, and in the other, the perpetrator is punished through the death of his own son. Is the kingdom the plowman and Alexander is the son? Or is this a kind of retrospective comment on the early deaths of Alexander's children? Or maybe I'm thinking too much like a literary critic, and this story is placed here in the Chronicle because it was a thing that actually happened in that same year as the king's death, and it was on our chronicler's list of things he wanted to report on, uh, like so many of the other strange non-sequitur incidents that are stitched in throughout the Lanarkost Chronicle. And as for the tragic prank pulled on the pompous knight by Queen Margaret and her ladies-in-waiting, I don't have too much to offer uh, other than to agree with our translator, who comments in a footnote that the ending of this story is rather hard to follow, um, both grammatically in the original Latin uh, and in terms of its message. And the moral it draws about why the knight's death is justified and how the queen is chastised because she was grieving too much for her father, um, it's all quite obscure. Maxwell does suggest that it might be something related to simony or nepotism. Simon Magus is referenced there at the end, uh, and maybe that ties into the oddly emphasized detail about the knight hiring the page boy on his brother's recommendation, uh, but it's all kind of a mess, <laughs> and I think we'll have to leave it there. Let's answer our riddle from last time. It was, tell me, what are the four things that never were and never will be full? This question is posed in the Old English prose dialogue of Solomon and Saturn, and the answer is, I tell thee, one is earth, the second is fire, the third is hell, the fourth is the man that is avaricious of worldly wealth. All of those are perceived as bottomless pits that can take and take and take and never be filled. I expect modern conservationists would beg to differ on the inclusion of the earth in that list, uh, it may have a very real and measurable capacity. Um, but if we read that as metonymy for the grave, then I think the riddle continues to hold up. Of course, if you believe the famous tagline of the George Romero classic Dawn of the Dead, then hell isn't quite so bottomless either. Something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? Fudu. Granddad was a priest in Trinidad. He used to tell us... When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. And now we need a new mystery word to explore next episode. That word will be inanition. I-N-A-N-I-C-I-O-N. Inanition. Depending on what languages you know and or what fields you've been trained in, uh, this might not be quite such a mystery word for you. Um, although the meaning has shifted and branched out a bit over the centuries. And I'll be back to talk about that word in our next episode, which I'm going to try to fast-track and maybe bring in a bit ahead of uh, two weeks from now um, to kind of make up for having been running late with this second episode. 
In the meantime, you can get more information, including references for this and every episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MDTPodcast. Um, I have failed utterly so far in my New Year's resolution to try to be more active on Twitter, um, but the year is still relatively young. And if you want to send me an email with questions or comments, you can reach me at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. That's going to do it for now. Those of you who, like my students, are off to spring break, have safe travels, and thanks for listening.